Want to introduce my name? My name is Dan Song. I'm the pastor here at Restoration. And if you probably already heard uh, some, some mention, uh, two of our members became one flesh last night. And so uh, Haley and Dustin Pates, uh, it's, it reads as Pete, but I just found out recently that the way you pronounce their last name is Pates. And so they got married last night and they are off on their honeymoon tomorrow morning. And so uh, if you do see them next week or in the coming weeks, uh, congratulate them. We had a lot of fun last night celebrating uh, what God has done in their life. Um, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn your, turn your Bible to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And if you're using a church Bible, we have church Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. And there you could turn to page 205. 205, and we are going to be reading um, sort of a lengthy passage, but we'll break it down into three snapshots. And so we won't do the, the usual reading before. Um, we'll actually get into it uh, passage by passage as we jump around. Um, but if you've been following with us during this Advent series, we've been looking at these Christophanies. And what Christophany is, is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, making these appearances, these momentary appearances in the Old Testament. And it's just been neat to see how each Christophany communicates to us the importance of why Christ came down to earth, why he took on flesh and became man. And as we've looked at and examined each of these Christophanies over the past three weeks, uh, we've seen these important facets of why uh, and who Jesus is as we celebrate and anticipate Christ's coming. And for us, it's that second coming, right? It's the second advent of as we wait, like the people of God did in the Old Testament. We're waiting for his second coming so that we too might experience the true joy and hope that is to come when he returns. And so read with me here, um, or let me pray for us, man. I'm so in the habit of reading. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you that uh, your word is alive. And it can, it can penetrate deep into our hearts and souls to show us who you are, to correct us, to encourage us, to rebuke us even, so that, Lord, we might become more like you. So, Lord, I pray that as we go through uh, this, this story of Gideon, Lord, I pray that you might illumine our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see uh, the, true, the true story and the good news that comes only in Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story that follows this manager, and he applies for this job. And in this job that he's applying for, he tells all about his past experience. And he says this, he says, my department has turned a profit every quarter for the past five years. Uh, I've never had a personnel problem. And I've always gotten superior performance reviews every single year. And the interviewer says, wow, I mean, that's, that's amazing. Share with us one of your weaknesses. And this manager says, well, I tend to exaggerate a lot. You know how it goes, right? You've applied for jobs in the past, and one of the things that you know is coming every single time uh, you're interviewed for any job is what? What are your weaknesses? 
You know it's coming. You dread it because if you answer it correctly, you might not get hired. But if you avoid it and don't answer it, you know that you can be perceived as being arrogant and not know and being self un or unaware of yourself. Now, if you're like me, there's different ways that we handle that question, right? If you're like me, the way I handle it is that I tend to make my weaknesses my strengths, right? Who, who does that in interviews, right? So what I will say is I'm such a perfectionist that I expect so much out of myself and others, right? Or others of you, I don't do this, but some of you might minimize your weaknesses, right? And so some of you might say, well, you know, I can be a very task-oriented person, but I've learned that working with people is the most effective way to accomplish a goal. Some of you are like taking notes to say, Ooh, this, is, this is pretty good. Or others of you uh, might actually answer that question by basically avoiding it and answering it that has nothing to do with the job that you're applying for, right? So, for example, you might be applying for an accounting position. And you know that if you say that you are not a detailed person, you won't get the job. So what do you say? You know, I'm just not a very creative person and artsy. And so that's my weakness. There's all different ways that we might answer that question. And the reason I bring this up is because here in the story of Gideon, as we read this story, it alludes to how we are people who are weak. And though we try to puff ourselves up and think that we can operate out of our strengths, what we find ourselves is that we are people who are broken. And we need the grace of God. And this is what this story is about today. In this person named Gideon, God does not save through what we would expect. But rather, God saves through not strength, but weakness. But before we can actually understand that, we have to understand the context and the setting of, of Gideon and the story that is laid out. And so follow with me in verses 1 through 6 of Gideon. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now what's going on here? As you read this, the first thing that we read is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now why, the, why this is so important is because in the book of Judges, there's this repetitive cycle that happens. What would happen is that God, they would forget about God, the people of Israel. They would forget about God and they would turn to different idols. And here in this chapter, they're worshiping Baal, the God of Baal. And as they forget God and turn to these idols, 
basically they are overtaken into slavery by other nations. And here we read that they're taken over by the Midianites. The Midianites were this Bedouin community in the deep Arabian desert. And they would come, and as they would take over and, and basically devour the land of Israel, the people would then finally cry out to God to save them. And every single time, God would deliver them out of the hand of these Midianites and other nations. Now here what we notice is that for the Midianites, they found this great military weapon that no one had ever used before. Now kids, since this is family worship, if you were in battle, what would be the weapon that you think could destroy other enemies? A gun. Okay, what else? A dragon. I like that. Dragon. A sword. Good. Very creative, you guys. Guess what they found out? If you look at verse 5, they use this military weapon of camels. Camels. No one before the Midianites thought that camels could be used as military weapons. Why? They were ugly, but more than they were ugly, there were these large animals that could traverse 300 to 400 miles for three to four days carrying a heavy load without any food or water. And so as they looked at these ugly camels, they said, aha, these would be amazing in warfare. And they were right. As you look at this story, these camels... And the people of Midian, you could not even count. And they would come into the land of Israel. And for seven years, they would come and devour the land. Of its crops, of its food, of everything that was in sight. And you read that, right? And look at verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste the land as they came in. And the Midianites were smart. You know what they did? They would wait every single year for the Israelites to plant, to lay it down the soil, and then right before harvest season, as they were about to harvest all their crops and grain, they would come in and take it all. So they let the Israelites do the work, and they would come and just devour all their crops and their food. And this happened every single year for seven years. Now here for the Israelites, they were crying out for help. And here they turned from civilized men and women, and they became cavemen and women that you see in verse 2, right? The hand of Midian overpowered Israel and became, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. They lived in caves. They were impoverished. They were enslaved to the people of Midian. And they lived in desolation, in darkness, and in brokenness. And in this season for us, as we Look two days to Christmas. Behind all the tinsel, behind all the carols and the music, behind all the decorations, there is brokenness in our world. Just this morning, I woke up 
And as I went on to some of the pages that I follow, I just read that Indonesia was hit with a tsunami where over 200 people in county are dead. Two days before Christmas. In our own communities, just this year on Thanksgiving weekend, at my daughter's school, her parents died over that Thanksgiving weekend. And for the first time in her life, our daughter's friend is celebrating Christmas without her parents. And in our own lives, whether it's in your marriages, financial crises, as you think about presents and gifts, as you think about having to go to your extended family and the strife that exists there, there is brokenness. There is desolation. There is darkness. As much as we want to celebrate and bring up joy and the hope that is in Christ, we also have to recognize that there is brokenness and hurt and pain and darkness in our world. Yes, God is working. God is working. But there is also pain and suffering that we experience in our lives, even in this Christmas season. So what does restoration look like in this season? Whether it's in your own hearts, as you battle some of your own sin and your idolatries. As you think about your neighborhood and your community, friends and relationships and families. As you think about this world and in the darkness and the desolation that exists. Like locusts that have completely wiped out our land. What does it look like for God to call you to bring and to pursue restoration like our mission states to our families and to our communities? That's a question we need to wrestle with. But as we do, it brings the second point of this encounter. It's in this point of complete desolation that God raises this man up, Gideon. And it's this encounter, this Christophany, as Jesus comes down and approaches and encounters Gideon, we begin to see why Christ came. So follow with me in verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, The Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you to their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came. Now this is where the Christophany happens. The angel of the Lord, it's the angel, right? It's not a angel. And it's attributed to Yahweh, the Lord. Came and sat under the tabernacle at Orpah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in, the might, in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? 
And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now, follow with me. Now, the angel of the Lord Christ appears to Gideon. But to understand what's happening here is that Gideon is found in a wine press. Now, if you have ever traveled to Israel, and I know it's Doug and Cindy, oh, they're not here, but they're going to be going to Israel. And the wine presses in Israel are actually down underground in these caves. And what is he doing? He's, he's, uh, he's sifting the wheat from the chaff. But in order to do that, the most efficient way is not in a cave, in a wine press. What you would do is you would go to these rolling hills outside. And outside, you would have these threshing floors on top of these large, vast hills. And you would take the grain and the wheat. And what you would do is you would take a huge shovel. I call it a shovel. I don't know what tool it was. But you would take these mounds of wheat that you would have. And you would throw it up into the air with the shovel. You would grab all the wheat. You would throw it up into the air. And as you know, on top of hills, what do you always see happen? That's where you would see the wind blow to and fro. And so they would, sh- they would sift the wheat because on top of hills by throwing up the wheat. And any chaff that had no grains would fly. But anything that was heavy would fall back to the ground. And so you would see these threshing floors on these huge, wide hills in Israel. And this is how they would sift their wheat. But what is Gideon doing? He's in a wine press. In a cave where there's no wind. And it was about yay large, these wine presses, about the size of the stage. Whereas these hills would be as large as this room. So what that, told, what that tells us in this story is that first they're impoverished as a nation, right? The Midianites just continue to ransack their land, and they only have a small amount of grain. So they're a poor country with hardly anything to eat. But second, he's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid for his life, and so you find him inside this little wine press, underground in a cave, sifting wheat in the most inefficient way possible. This is how we find Gideon. And what Gideon says is absolutely right. He's not showing humility. He's not lying. But when he says in verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He is being brutally honest. Our nation is the most impoverished. I come from the smallest tribe. I come from the smallest clan. And I come from the weakest family. I am the least of the least of the least. But how does the angel of God, Jesus, 
view Gideon. In verse 12, does he say, you pathetic loser? Why are you afraid? No. What does he say in verse 12? He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I love the NIV's translation. You know what the NIV says? You mighty warrior. God looks at him with the grace, the eyes of grace, and says, you mighty warrior. Not you pathetic, scared loser. But instead calls him a mighty warrior. You see, for a lot of us, we have narratives that run in our head and in our mind. And it could have been for good intention. But things that maybe your parents have told you, friends have said to you, things on Instagram and social media, or even little, little things about your body or your image that have stuck with you for your entire life. But the way that God sees us is with eyes of grace. Not in the lies that you are told and you believe. And not in who you are even now. But with eyes of grace to be able to see who you will be. And in many ways in who you are as well right now. I know for a lot of us, we've heard that you're a failure. You're a loser. You're no good. Everything you touch does not turn to gold. But here, what we need to be reminded is how God views us. One commentator said this. He said, one of the great truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, He does not see us so much for what we presently are as for what we can become through His work in our lives. He's in the business of taking weak, insignificant people and transforming them by His presence. He begins with us where we are and as we are. He knows our weaknesses, failures, discouragements, doubts, and inadequacies. But he does not say, you get rid of those, and then I can use you. Rather, he comes to us in our weakness with the promise of his power that will transform our inadequacy into his strength. He may love us as we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us that way. See, we need to believe in how God views each and every single one of us. We are made in His image. We are loved. Right? You've heard me say it a thousand times. Even when the worst is known, love is still given. How do you view yourselves? Do you view yourselves in the ways of the narrative that has been told over and over again to you? Or do you believe in what Christ says to you? Mighty warrior comes to the last point. As we look at this, as God calls Gideon, he brings him into this battle. Follow with me in, ver- in chapter 7, verse 1. 7, verse 1, follow along with me in this story. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. What's going on here? So... There's 135,000 Midianites ready to fight. But unlike the other seven years, this is a totally different ball game, right? Because when the Midianites would come every single year for the past seven years, there was no army. There was no general or leader. They would just come like locusts and swarm the land. But this time is different. There are 32,000 Israelites standing on the other side of the hill with their leader, Gideon. 135,000 people against 32,000. Four to one, if you do the math. And God comes to Gideon and says, we got a number problem here. And I'm assuming Gideon's like, yes, thank you, God. You notice we need more men. But that's not what he says, right? What does God say? No, 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 Gideon. You have too many men. So look at every single one. And whoever's afraid and wants to go home, let him go home. Now, if you were one of those men and you saw 135,000 people, you had no weapons, they had all their camel, the greatest military weapon in the world, known to man at that point. What would you do if Gideon said, who's afraid? If you're afraid, go home. Almost all of them did. 22,000 go home and there's only 10,000 that remain. 10,000. And then God looks back and says to Gideon, Hey, buddy, 20, uh, 10,000 is still too many. He says, I want you to go to the riverside. And I want you to go down. And I want everyone who's th- or everybody to get some water because they're thirsty. Now, pay attention to how they drink their water. And what you see are two different people, two different kinds of people drink water. There's the normal people, right? What do they do? They cup their hands, put some water to their mouth, and drink it. That's what you see. They kneel down, they cup their hands, and they drink water. But there's 300 crazy people who go down and basically just go using like a dog lapping water with their tongue. And what God says is take those 300 crazy people and, and I'm right, because how are dogs described in the Bible? It's a derogatory term. It's not like they're the great, cute puppies and dogs that we have. No, dogs were derogatory in the Bible. 
So what God is saying is use those dogs. Those 300 crazy, psycho dog lappers, tongue lappers, and use those men and go into battle against 135,000. Guess what the number, the ratio is at that point? 450 to 1. And go into battle now. And if you read that last verse, guess what they go into, into battle with? Trumpets. <laughs> they use trumpets. And later on, you see them just use trumpets. And God just wipes the people out. Now, why is this so important to this Christophany? Think about it. If you had 32,000 people against 135,000, 4 to 1, Gideon could have still said, wow, I am a great general. I'm a great motivator. I am a great leader. Praise be to Gideon. Right? But even with 10,000, yes, the numbers are totally against him. But he could have still said, I'm a great strategist. I'm a great mobilizer. I am a great leader. Praise be to me. And for that reason, he doesn't take the 300 that are the best fighters. He takes the 300 that are the craziest, the weirdest, who have no business in fighting this battle. Why? Because as you see in, ver in, in verse 3, no, no, sorry, not in verse 3. Uh, where am I? I lost my place verse four take them down to the water no no that's not it where, where am i what does it say so that you might not boast in yourself right you guys find that verse two oh man two yes the people with you are too many for me to give the midnight into your hands lest israel boast over me saying my own hand has saved me you see, what God is showing Gideon and the people of God is that when you don't think you have enough, when you're running on fumes, my grace is sufficient for you. I will give you just enough, just enough, so that you might be able to win this battle. I will give you just enough to be able to make it this day. Isn't that what we prayed? Give us our daily bread. Our daily bread. Not too much so that we might boast. Not too little so that we go hungry. But just enough, our daily bread. And here, God is showing the Israelites that when you think you don't have enough, He will give you just enough so that you might give all glory to God. Because so much of our tendencies and our desire is to puff ourselves up and say that it's because of me. But here, what we see is that he gives him just enough. Times when we feel like the locusts have overtaken us, he will give us just enough. And that's what Christ shows us in his coming. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12, 9, when Paul has these 
has this thorn in his flesh, and he asks God to remove it three times. What does God say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that po- the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, this principle is perfectly mirrored here in this story. Gideon and all Israel was going to put its confidence in its fighting men, but God removes all of them so that the victory, this victory will lead them to trust in God and not in Baal, not in their idols, but in their God who has rescued them and delivered them. You see, God teaches us this principle in the gospel, right? With Christ coming down, That we are not saved by our works, our strengths, our abilities. But by God's grace. It is only by God's grace. And in the same way, we do not really get the gospel until God has shown it to us again and again. That it is not in our strength. But it's in our weakness. It's when we're on fumes. When we recognize that we cannot save ourselves, but it's only in Christ. That is when we realize that it is by the grace of God that we are saved and not by works alone. As I close, I want to share this story. I shared about Johnny Erickson Tata a lot. But there's this story that I just read recently that I didn't know. In a swimming accident when she was a teenager, she became a paraplegic. And she speaks all over the world and writes many books. But she tells the story of being in a ladies' restroom. And that's where it always happens for women, right? In ladies' restrooms. And she's in this bathroom during this women's conference. And a well-meaning woman who's putting on her lipstick in front of the mirror looks at Johnny Erickson Todd and says, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. And all these other women who heard her say this, say, yeah, 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 I totally agree. How do you do it? How do you stay so joyful? This is what Johnny said. I don't do it. Let me tell you how it works. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone by myself until 7 a.m. And that's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, Oh, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, dress me, sit me up in a chair, brush my hair and teeth, and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't even have a smile to take into the day. But you do, Lord. May I have yours, God. I need you desperately. So what happens then when your friend comes through the bedroom door? One of the women asks. And she says, I turn my head toward her. And give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. And so whatever joy you see in me today was hard won this morning. For a lot of us today, as God's grace has been enough for Johnny, and she has to appropriate every single day of her life, so do we. And that's my prayer for us, that in our weakness, we might boast all the more in Christ's strength. During this Christmas season, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for Jesus who came into this world to take people who are broken, messed up, 
and to show us, Lord, that it is in our weakness that, Lord, your strength is made known. So, Lord, I pray that wherever we are in our faith journey, God, I pray that we would be able to, to say with confidence the good news that, Lord, it is not in our strength, it is not in our works, but it is only by the grace of God that we are saved. So I pray that that would be our hope, that would be our joy, that would be our peace today and every day. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we have the opportunity to profess our faith to crossroads or restoration. What is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and on earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. As we come to the table this morning, this table exactly represents this good news. Jesus was the greater Gideon. In his weakness, he came down to save us who are broken. He didn't come with a sword. He didn't come with camels. In our broken, locust-infested world, Christ came in weakness, in humility, in shame, so that he might come to save broken, weak people like us. And it's here we see that. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we might be able to experience the grace that is just enough for us today. As you eat and drink, may that be just enough for you this week to be able to be faithful, to go into the places of brokenness that you know are there. So that you might be able to pursue restoration and bring hope in life. So let's do that. Let's come to the table and experience God's grace for you today and this week. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, Lord, I pray that this table will be just enough for us this week. That as we go into the broken places that you have called us to, Lord, I pray that we would not operate out of our own strength or our own abilities. But Lord, in our weakness, we'd be able to boast in Christ whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we might experience true joy and strength in the one who laid down his life for us. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.